morning. My name is Paul, and I'll be reading Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. Um, my name is Matt Stevens. I'm actually the uh, executive director here at NBC now, which is basically just our, our term for the assistant to the regional manager. Um, so, so you know how that works. Um, but uh, this morning, um, I just this, this, over this last year, our small group has been doing a study on the Beatitudes, um, really more specifically over humility. Um, this book called The Blessing of Humility is what we did. So if you're interested in that, I would highly recommend getting that book. I know some of you in the, uh, in the Rooted have probably already done that. Um, but I would say that everyone in our group probably felt that book was very impactful for us. Um, and so I thought this morning, why not take another look at that as a church? So that's what we're going to do. Um, but before we get going here, I wanted to share something with you. Um, last week, the United States Surgeon General put out this quote um, and it was, it's in relation to, to kind of years of study of the effects of social media. Okay, and these, these, shuddy, these studies now show that conclusively, and this was the quote, that social media has a profound risk of harm to kids. Some of you would be like, well, yeah, of course, we kind of realize that. But this is significant because this is now like official, right? So, and some of you might remember this, okay? Back, back, I'm just old enough to remember this. Um, lots of magazines and TV ads back in the day were for cigarettes, all right, and they even marketed them as, as like this really cool thing. As they were almost sophisticated. There was almost an elegance to like smoking. You know, they had the Marlboro Man and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, at the bottom of every one of those ads, it had a little box that was the Surgeon General's warning, right? And it basically said, you can buy these because, you know, America, right? However, we have to let you know that these cigarettes cause cancer, right? And it's, it's basically uh, uh, more than likely expediting your death, right? And so that's at the bottom of all these. So this, this statement about social media is, is more or less an equivalent to that. Um, you can use social media, but it's causing you um, mental and emotional cancer, right? Studies are showing an astronomical increase of anxiety and depression, especially among kids, and even more specifically, for young girls. Okay, and, and it's now official. Like, it's directly been linked to the consumption of social media since these studies began in 2010. And some of you, social media has always been. Like, you were born into this. Like, it's always existed. But 
um, relatively, like this is, a, this is a new experiment. Like it's only been around, I think Facebook started in 2004, Instagram launched in 2010. Okay, so we don't really have a lot of data on the long-term effects of social media. And so we're just now understanding these things. So I'm, I'm not gonna tell you that, hey, if you, if you cut out social media, that's gonna solve all your anxiety and all your depression and all your problems, okay? They're not gonna melt away, but you know, if you knew something was causing you harm, wouldn't you consider stopping that? Or at least backing off a little bit, right? Maybe you consider, like, something's wrong with this. Like, right? if it's causing these things. And, and maybe, just maybe, okay, that the world that is constantly telling you what's going to make you happy, your likes, your subscribers, your influence, the brands that you should wear, the, all the things that you need in your life, aren't actually making you happy. And church, this doesn't just apply to kids. Okay, there's been other studies that have started just as recent as 2020 that are showing a worldwide surge in unhappiness. Now, some of you will be like, well, 2020, yeah, of course. I mean, that's, remember that whole pandemic thing? Well, yes, there was that. Um, but these studies have been going on for decades. This trend has been, been going on for a while now. So the pandemic didn't cause it. It may have exacerbated it, right? But it didn't cause it. Like, this is something that's been brewing. Um, these studies that are basically showing that there's a worldwide increase in distress. People are grappling with more stress, with more anger, with more sadness, with more pain, with more worry. Right? They've, they're dealing with relationships that are fracturing or, or families that are being torn apart. And so we're kind of left with this question among all this distress. Is it even possible? Is it even, is it even plausible to find and to live a good life? A life that's bursting with happiness and contentment, and fulfillment. Jesus assures us here that, yes, it is possible, but you aren't going to stumble into it by following the world's blueprint. So we're gonna journey through what is basically Jesus' roadmap to a blessed life. And we're gonna see that his vision of a blessed life, spoiler alert, is not like the world's. Okay, it's not gonna be one that's found in luxury, or in power, or in wealth, or in fame, or even some sort of moral or, or a religious checklist. Okay, that, uh, and honestly, it's not even those things are, are, are inherently bad, but when we make them the goal of, and the aim of, and the target of our life, like they're ultimately going to lead to our destruction. So Jesus asserts that a good life is one that's lived out under God's blessing, um, where his favor is generously poured out into your life, and it isn't contingent upon your circumstances. Right? Like it's, a, it's a life of, of inner uh, tranquility, of, of joy, of peace, of contentment, of, of a kind of spiritual prosperity, and it's thriving because of God's blessing. Now, when I say that there's this worldwide, worldwide rise of, of unhappiness, I, I think it's probably safe to say that many of us in this room are struggling, okay? that we fall into that, that you don't really need me to tell you that these studies exist um, to describe what's what you're living through on a day-to-day -day basis, or maybe you've been living through for years, or, or maybe some of you many years, okay? You've felt that kind of escalating unhappiness in your life. Perhaps you felt more anxious, or more depressed, more angry, more hopeless, or saddened because you've lived through those fractured relationships. And maybe you're wondering this very thing, can I possibly live in, can I possibly find this blessed life? In church, Jesus says to us that if you desire a life, a blessed life amidst all the unhappiness, amidst all the anger and the anxiety and the sorrow and the division, 
Like it starts right here in these verses. So let's look at this. We're in, in Matthew. We're going to look at the first beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 3. It says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this is the foundational one. Okay, this is the one that we need to grasp before we even look at the other ones. Um, we, this one has to make sense. It's the cornerstone to make the other ones also make sense. So what does the word poor mean? Well, poor is just this, it's synonymous with this kind of utter bankruptcy, right? Like you have nothing, right? It's utter destitution. Like it's painting a picture of maybe some of you have visited a, a third world country or heck, I mean, we don't even have to go there. We could go into one of our major cities these days, right? And we see this level of poverty, right? And this is, this is what he's painting here. It's very vivid. It's, it's, it's supposed to invoke this idea of, of completely broken people. Like their pockets are turned out. They have no resources to meet their own needs. And so this profoundly felt need drives them to beg, right? They, they have nothing. They're in utter desperation. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor like that, but in spirit. So what does this poor in spirit mean? Well, he's saying blessed are those who find themselves bankrupt and destitute when it comes to God's currency, okay, and what he deems valuable. Now, here's some truth for you this morning. You and I, we don't have it. We don't have it. The righteousness that he seeks, we don't have it. The wisdom that he desires, we don't have it. The love that he expects from you and me, we don't have that. So when it comes to, to what God asks of his creation, the poor in spirit declare, I don't have it. I'm absolutely broken, my pockets are empty, I have nothing to offer. These are people who could be referred to as the spiritual zeros, right? They're the the morally questionable. They're those that that have nothing that make them worthy in God's eyes. There's nothing prominent about their spiritual resume. There's nothing about them that that would make them appealing. You guys following that? Like in Jesus' time, these were the morally outcast. Like they were the, the spiritually afflicted. They were the lepers. They were the theologically untrained, right? They were the ones who, who would be too terrified to enter the temple and wouldn't even feel welcomed there if they, if they were there, okay? They were the spiritual zeros. And essentially, Jesus says, for those of you who feel that you're spiritual zeros, for those of you who feel like you're completely unimpressive in this kind of realm of spirituality, if you don't have any significant theological knowledge, you, you probably feel like you're out of place at church and, and you wouldn't even feel welcomed there if you decided to come, the kingdom of God is for you. Isn't that amazing? Now understand this, you are blessed not because your spiritual poverty earns you anything, okay? Because the kingdom of God is intended for people like you. That's the only reason, okay? It's tailor-made for the spiritual zeros, for those who are morally questionable for those who who don't have a leg to stand on before God or before anyone else, okay? Jesus says, here's why you're blessed, because the kingdom of God is yours. You're granted access to it. You get to claim it. So what is this kingdom of God, all right? Well, real simply, like it's, it's the saving and loving reign of Jesus reconciling you to God and renewing your life, okay? But when we look at the scriptures, we see the kingdom of God is portrayed as this future domain, right? Like it is when the kingdoms of this world are transformed in the kingdom of God and Christ is placed there to reign eternally, okay? And all the adversaries of God become the footstool of Jesus, right? And, and he'll renew everything. We witness a new heaven and a new earth, right? It's filled with righteousness and joy and peace, okay? And, and there's no enemies. You're shielded from harm, right? There's no death. 
There's no tears, there's no sorrow, okay? there's no loss, there's no separation. Okay? This is the future realm. That's what we call the kingdom of God. But it's also a present reality. It's this idea of a not yet kingdom, right? but an already. Okay? And Jesus is telling us that we can actually experience that now. Okay? In his son Jesus, who restores us to God through forgiveness, through acceptance, through an adoption into his family. Okay? He rejuvenates our life. And he actually will heal and change and comfort and strengthen and guide us through life. That kingdom is here now, and it's within our reach. Okay, we get to be restored to God through Jesus, through his forgiveness, through his acceptance uh, that he secured for us on the cross, right? And that adoption into his family through him alone. Okay, and we have this kingdom of God that's within us, and it can completely transform our lives. And Jesus says that that's here now but it's exclusively for the poor in spirit. Like it's theirs and theirs alone, okay? It's no one else's, it belongs to them. Now, I think it's important sometimes that we address what he's not saying, okay? Jesus is not telling us that if we're poor in spirit, we can earn heaven. <clears throat> and if we're, um, he's not implying that, that this, is, this is kind of something that we work towards, right? He's, he's making a proclamation. Okay, he's declaring that the kingdom of heaven is available and it's custom made for the poor in spirit. So if, don't let your kind of spiritual bankruptcy um, make you feel as though the kingdom of God isn't for you. Okay, it's, it's actually precisely for people like you. And it's only for people like you in that condition. It's only for the poor in spirit because it's those people who are driven to God by their need who get access and no one else. So, if we accept this as truth, then the opposite also has to be true. If blessed are those who are poor in spirit, then cursed are those who are proud in spirit. Those who don't, uh, don't understand uh, their real need for God, right? Or, or those who feel assured before God because of their spiritual or their moral achievements. Christian, if, if you don't feel a need for God, if, if you don't, um, or if you think like, that God is somehow like, impressed by you, or, or that he owes you something, if you're not astounded by, if you're not shocked by, like if you don't see it as a scandal that God would love you and want you, then you're not poor in spirit. You know, if you think, well, he's God, of course he loves me. He's, he's kind of, it's like his job. You know, he's supposed to love me. Um, I'm a decent person. Well, you're not poor in spirit and you're outside the kingdom of God. But if you're aware of your need of God, and that need drives you towards him, okay, that's the poverty of spirit that he's talking about here. If you think there's absolutely no way that this is meant for someone like you, then friend, you're knocking on the door of God's kingdom. And we can't avoid this truth, okay? If we, if we look at the scriptures and we listen to what Jesus has to say, we see it and it echoes all throughout the scriptures, okay? We, we see it when we, when we hear the gospel. Like it's clear who he welcomes. He welcomes who? The tired, the hurt, the worn out, the society's outcasts. But who does he turn away? Well, he turns away those who are confident in their own self-righteousness, right? Those who are self-sufficient. Those who might admit, well, yeah, I need God but they're not driven to him by a desperate need, right? Those are the people that Jesus sees walking away from him. To be poor in spirit is to come to God with absolutely empty hands and say, only you can fill them. 
And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. But I don't want you just to take my word for this. I want to look at some passages, okay? We're going to look through four different ones. And so just kind of bear with me. We don't have time to, to dive into each one. So I'm kind of try to summarize them and kind of give you the highlights and, and show you that, that this is a, a common thread throughout the scriptures. So if you want to mark these and you can look back later in your Bible at them, the first one we're going to look through is in Luke 18, um, starting in verse 9. And this is a parable that Jesus uh, talks about. It's, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I want to look at both of these guys just so we can see the contrast. So first we're going to look at the Pharisee. Okay, this is the guy who, who shows up at temple and everyone is just like, wow, this guy spiritually, he's got it together. Like he should be the one leading the ministries. Okay, that he's familiar with the scriptures. He's grown up memorizing them. He knows them by heart. He lives by them. He avoids sin. He shuns sinners, right? Like his commitment to these spiritual disciplines are unmatched. Right? And they're in the parable. He, he stands there and he's in the temple and he's praying and he says, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other sinners. Right? These, these adulterers and thieves and particularly this tax collector over here. Right? Because I fast twice a week and I tithe from everything that I have. Like his obedience and his spiritual discipline is impeccable. Right? Like this guy only listens to Christian music. Like he, he only eats a Chick-fil-A. He only shops at Hobby Lobby. Right? This guy is the Pharisee. But let's look at the tax collector. Okay? This guy, it's hard to, it's hard to find like a, a modern version of the tax collector. So I'm going to try just to explain to you real quick what, what they are. So the Romans came in and conquered uh, these Jewish cities and they, they implemented taxes on them. And these guys were Jews who worked now for the Romans to collect the taxes that they were being charged. But a lot of times they would, they would kind of upcharge and they would kind of pocket some of the extra taxes for themselves. Okay? So they were corrupt. Right? They were irreligious. They were kind of universally despised by the other Jews. They were seen as betrayers of their own people. So this tax collector in the parable, he's a, he's a social reject. Right? He stood on the outside. He was unable to even lift his gaze uh, heavenward. He couldn't look God in the eye. Like unlike the Pharisee over here who felt like he could stare God down because he was standing in his own merits, right? And all he could do, all this tax collector could do in, in the verse is he's just kind of beating his chest and he says, um, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And church, like this is, this is the key right here. Jesus says, that's the guy, the tax collector. That's the guy who left the temple justified before God. That's the man who had the gates of the kingdom of God flung open for him, right? That's the one who, who recognized his spiritual poverty and, and relied not on his own merits, but only on God's mercy. That's who the kingdom of God is for, for the poor in spirit. Let's look at another uh, passage here. This is going to be in Luke 7. Um, Jesus is, is visiting Simon's house, another Pharisee. Um, common thread there, all right? A religious guy, well-respected in the community. They're having a meal at this house. And this woman enters, known only as the sinful woman, okay? She's a notorious sinner. She sold her body. She, she'd been objectified and exploited. She'd probably broken numerous homes, but equally had a broken heart, Okay, and she, she kind of hears Jesus is at this house and, and she kind of walks right into the lion's den. She falls at his feet, begins crying and washing his feet with her tears. She lets her hair down and wipes his feet. Um, she um, then anoints his feet with perfume and begins kissing his feet. So don't miss that, like her, her hair, her perfume, her kisses. These were the tools of her trade. And now she's using them to honor Jesus. Okay, and her heart is split wide open, having heard 
from him, that, that God's love and his grace and his mercy, like she's left devastated, knowing that she deserves nothing. So she just gives everything. And meanwhile, we have Simon, the Pharisee, watching this whole scene unfold. Now he kind of has contempt for this. He, he sneers at her, he sneers at Jesus. Um, and he's, it says he thinks to himself, or he says to himself, that if Jesus knew who she was, like he wouldn't even let her touch him. And I love parts of the scripture like this, and Jesus kind of answers someone's thoughts, or you know, he didn't actually hear it, but he just responds, and he shares this story about God's grace. He says, um, the more that you've been forgiven, the more love you have. So Jesus stands up for this woman. He declares God's forgiveness over her, and he swings open wide the kingdom Uh, to her, all the while keeping them shut to Simon. Jesus honors her as an example of what God seeks in a worshiper. Not one who possesses a vast knowledge or stands up on their own, but one who's broken before him and says only this, I need mercy. Those are the ones who are blessed. We're gonna look at another one here. This is one, if you haven't even been to church, you may have even heard this, this parable before. It's from Luke chapter 15. It's the story of the prodigal son. So I'll try to just quickly summarize this. There's two sons. The younger one decides, hey, I don't wanna live under my father's house anymore. I want my inheritance. He, he gets that and he goes off and just kinda of begins this reckless life, womanizing, drinking, throwing parties, and eventually he ends up broke. Okay, he ends up working, um, uh, feeding pigs, and, and it gets so desperate that he, he sees the pig, fe- pig slop, and he's like, that, you know, that almost looks appetizing. And then he has this kind of aha moment, right? And he says, you know, even my father's servants have a better life than this, right? I should go back and just beg to be a servant, and so he does that. You know, he rehearses this speech, and he heads off back home. Well, well, unbeknownst to him, his father's been waiting for his return, like he's been looking out the horizon and as soon as he sees the sun, he gathers up his robe and he runs for him, right? And he embraces him and he kisses him and the son starts to try to rehearse his speech and the father interrupts him and he says, uh, no, treat him like royalty. Put a, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, put the best robe on his back, kill the fattened calf. We're gonna have a party. My son was dead, now he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. Blessed are the poor in spirit. But the older brother the dutiful one, the upright one, the rule-keeping one, the one that stayed home, what does he do? He's angry. He's angry over his brother's sin, and he is resentful of his father's indiscriminate kindness towards his brother. And what happens? He says he refuses to join the celebration, and he stands on the porch of the house a million miles from his father's heart. The kingdom of God is wide open to the poor in spirit, but it's closed to the proud. And I've got one more, so just hang hang with me one more time here. This is from Luke 23. We're gonna see Jesus on the cross with the two thieves. Okay, so we have Jesus and the two thieves on the cross. The the thieves are are kind of berating Jesus until Jesus says, and, and prays for his executioners. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then one of the thieves begins to kind of change his tune, and the other one keeps kind of berating him, but the, the, the kind of repentant thief silences him. He says, hey, we're getting what we deserve, but this man was innocent. Right? And he turns to Jesus and he says, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the kingdom of God, the door is thrown wide open for him. Okay, a minute ago, this guy's just a beggar on the outside of the gates. And now he's sitting at the table. Right, and he didn't earn it. Like he, was, 
He was getting what he deserved. He was a criminal, right? But he cast himself upon Jesus' mercy, and the kingdom of God was thrown wide open to him. So where does that leave us when we break this idea down that blessed are the poor in spirit and um, cursed are the proud? What is our takeaway? So I have three things this morning that I, I wanted to, to kind of suggest to you. The first one is this. If you feel that you're not enough for Jesus, that's when you're most ready for Jesus. Okay, if you're thinking, I'm just not worthy enough, I'm not knowledgeable enough, I'm not moral enough, I'm not clean enough, I'm not churchy enough, I'm not you fill in the blank enough, then you're standing right on the edge of the kingdom of God. You're smack dab in the target zone, okay? This is what it means to be poor in spirit, to be one of the not enoughs who recognize that they'll never be enough and they don't strive to make themselves enough or validate their worth, okay? They don't fall into that trap. If I could just clean up my life, you know, then maybe I'd be ready to go or maybe if I just attended church a little more often, church, that's, that's not how the kingdom of God operates, Okay, if you feel like you're not enough, if you're sensing that spiritual poverty, then the kingdom of God is tailor-made for you. Okay, you don't wait, you just receive it. Okay, you come as you are, empty-handed, and he fills those hands. We sang a song just a minute ago, and I just wanna read a little bit of that again. That says, all the poor and powerless, all the lost and lonely, all the thieves will come confess and know that you are holy. Okay, this is the only way anyone comes. Just empty-handed. They don't, you don't have anything to bring. You don't have anything to offer. Only God is good. Only God is holy. Okay, that's a stark contrast to our culture's notions of self-worth and self-esteem. Okay, it's not this idea that we try to, to put in culture that, you know, I'm, I'm not that bad. <laughs> in truth, it's way worse than that. <laughs> Okay, it's not this idea that we're not that bad, it's the idea that we're so bad that our only hope was that God would become man and he would go to the cross and his flesh would be torn apart in our stead, taking on all the sin, all the failure, all the mess ups that you and I have ever committed. That's how bad it is, okay? God didn't give you a checklist to fix your condition. He gave you a savior, right? Okay, Jesus came and he bled and he died for you. Okay, and the scripture reminds us of that. It says there's none righteous, not one. And even our best deeds are filthy rags to a holy God. Okay, we're, we're totally useless. We're the spiritual zeros, every single one of us. But when we grasp that, when we, when we feel that, when we give up on ourselves and we lean in on his mercy, not just for salvation, okay, but for life, like we receive the kingdom of God. That's the stunning beauty of the gospel. You just come. You don't attend church to be saved. It's important that we understand that. You come to Jesus to be saved. And you go to church to join a community learning to live as the saved and the loved people of God. So if you're sitting here today and you're perhaps thinking about this idea of Christianity, you're kind of taking it for a test drive, so to speak, and you're thinking, I'm not sure that I'm cut out for this. But your hesitation is because, and it stems from this idea that you feel inadequate, then friend, you're exactly the kind of person that Jesus is seeking. Okay, Jesus is there. Just reach out to him. He's waiting. And here's something else I want to share with you. There are folks who have been going to church since childhood, who have been attending church every Sunday, 
um, who've been sitting in these seats their whole lives, but their hearts are light years away from God. Their trust is in themselves. It's in their religious practices. It's in their moral compass. It's in their ethical guidelines. It's in their, their amount of knowledge that they hold, right? It's in their political choices, right? And ultimately, their faith is in themselves. Okay, these are individuals who have been churchgoers their whole life, and they act as though, and they believe God owes them something for their religious activities or their attempts at righteousness, right? They resemble who? They resemble the Pharisee. They resemble Simon. They resemble the older brother in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, right? They're the dutiful rule followers who are standing right at the door yet are miles away from the father. So the second thing is this. We need to remember that the state of being spiritually poor is not just a one-time requirement to enter the Christian life. It's a continual state in which we should live. So there's this... Um, there's a story in Second uh, Samuel, chapter 9. Um, it's about David and Mephibosheth. And I'm sure you guys are very familiar with this one, so just let me recap it. Um, so we have, this is years after the death of Saul, who was the king of Israel, and Jonathan, who was his son. Okay, and David is now king of Israel. He's, he's the one reigning. He's, he's kind of looking back over his life, and he's thinking about Jonathan, who was his best friend, and he's, he's just kind of wondering, is there anyone left in Jonathan's lineage, who I could just kind of show God's kind, kindness towards. And, and one of the, the servants there in, in, the, in the palace says, you know, Mephibosheth is still alive. And Mephibosheth, it, it was Jonathan's son. And when he was younger, like he had fallen or he, he, he'd been dropped or something and, and he hurt himself and was, he was lame in his feet. He, had, he lost the ability to walk, okay? Um, and so David, hearing that Mephibosheth is still alive, um, says, bring him to me. Right, so they go out and they bring Mephibosheth to the palace and, and David says, hey, Mephibosheth, what's up? You know, like, I, what I want to do with, for you is I want to restore all that your grandfather had, all that Saul had, and I want you to dine at my table every single night with me in the palace. And Mephibosheth's response, he's just been plucked out of nowhere here, and, and he says this, he says, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Like, he feels unworthy, right? Like, he, he's like, what is, what is happening? Yet, he's been welcomed into the family, right? He's been welcomed to dine at the king's table. And it goes on, it's, it's a really short chapter. There's only 13 verses. And I think the, the, the last verse is kind of odd the way it ends, right? It says, um, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. And then this last line, now he was lame in both his feet. And then it ends. And I thought that was odd. And maybe this is just conjecture here, but like, he was a permanent guest at the king's table, right? He's feasting there daily, daily as though he was one of David's sons, right? He, and the, the author feels, feels led to remind us that he was lame in both his feet at the end of this. Like, it, it's reminded that he didn't um, show up at the king's table because of any kind of special talents that he had. He didn't have any kind of special strengths um, or, or, or anything. He was just simply this man with physical limitations who was given the privilege to dine at the king's table every day. Church, we are always the ones with the limitations at the king's table. Okay, we're completely reliant on him for everything. Okay, the concept of being spiritually poor, it doesn't just apply to you at the beginning of your Christian walk, it should permeate your entire journey. Okay, we're constantly dependent on him for our righteousness and our status with him. We're continually relying on him for strength, for wisdom, for provision, for mercy, for kindness, 
Okay, and we should rise every day like a beggar, right? Compelled to seek God because of our deep-seated need for him. And that's the essence of our Christian faith. So the last thing is this, and then, and then we'll wrap up. Those who are poor in spirit never see themselves as above anyone else. They can't. The not enoughs cannot look down on the other not enoughs. Okay, the idea here is like you can't both be out here drowning and then you look over and criticize what that person's wearing. Okay, it doesn't make any sense, right? And so we don't assume a place of superiority over others because we don't put any stock in our own merits, right? The word of God tells us that our standing before God is based solely and completely on Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross, his righteousness, which he generously credits to us. Okay, it's always about the grace of Jesus. It's never about our personal achievements. So how can we think about looking down on others for their lack of achievement? If we look back at Luke 18, there's the first part of that parable that I left off, um, the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and it says this, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You see it? When we become self-righteous, we start thinking that our present position or is a result of kind of our own talents, of our own skills, of our own wisdom, of our own knowledge, of our own efforts, and we inevitably start despising those that lack them. So if we let our moral standards define us, inevitably we will start looking down on those who don't adhere to our same standards. But as Christians, we're called to live with hearts full of mercy, not hearts overflowing with self-righteousness. Jesus had a message to the Pharisees. He says, go um, and, and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Do you know the emotion that's most frequently attributed to Jesus in the scriptures? Compassion. Church, if we find more fault in the world than we feel compassion for it, we've strayed from the heart of God. He desires his church to be a beacon of mercy, not a monument of merit. So that's why we say here that we are people learning to follow Jesus. Okay? It's an open invitation. Everyone's invited to that. And the best place to explore who Jesus is is within a community that deeply loves him, that earnestly seeks him, and consistently throws themselves upon his grace and upon his mercy. So if you're here today and you're feeling like you're not enough for Jesus, I want to suggest to you that's actually the perfect place to be. Okay, that we are all on a never-ending journey of experiencing our, our spiritual poverty, and those who are poor in spirit should never look down upon anyone else. That's the heart of it all, church. That's the humility that Jesus is speaking to when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you um, that it is not dependent upon us to achieve righteousness because we simply can't. We don't have what's required. We never could. We were in such bad state that you became flesh, that you walked this earth, that you lived a perfect, righteous life under the law and went to the cross as a, as a payment for our sin. And then you rose from the grave victorious and you are the living God. 
And your word teaches and instructs us, Lord, and we pray that we would fall into this humility, this poverty of spirit, and we would draw near to you, knowing that is for our good. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray, amen.